From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. What's purple, gold, and green all over? Here's a hint. It's sweet, filled with cream, and there's a tiny plastic baby hiding inside. I'm talking about king cake, of course, that seasonal expression of joy and creativity centered in the city of New Orleans. It's a tradition that crosses communities and cultures and is a unique expression of the city. Several years ago, writer Matthew Haynes set out to document these cakes in all their glorious variety, and he came away with a coffee table book of photographs and stories from all over the region. The big tradition deserves the big book of king cake. Hi, Matt. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. You know, I remember the first time I opened your book and I was just blown away by the variety and just the joyfulness that are king cakes and how they express themselves in so many different ways. Um, What made you decide to go on this quest? Yeah, I mean, I had a very uh, similar feeling to what you just described. Um, and so uh, in New Orleans, it's common to have what's called a, a king cake party. And the idea is that all the attendees will bring their favorite king cake. And there's a vote at the end to see who brought the best one. And it's kind of, you know, a, a point of pride to introduce others to, to hopefully their new favorite version. And so I didn't know what my favorite king cake was at the time. This was back in 2017. And so I... Um, Googled the best king cakes in New Orleans, and I found a top 10 list, and I put those in a spreadsheet, and I said, surely if I try these, the best one, that's what I'll bring. But then I found another list that was 15, and so I was like, okay, well, those 15 are different than those 10, so I guess I'll have to try 25. And by the time I kept adding to this spreadsheet I was compiling, I had more than 100 king cakes to try before the party. Um, and I, I failed. I only ate 88 of them that year. Uh, but similar <laughs> to you, I was really blown away by just the incredible variety in the way they looked, in the the fillings that were being chosen, um, in what seemed to be important to the different bakers. I had just kind of wondered if somebody had ever written a book about this, and it turns out they hadn't. Um, and so I got started. What is the celebration that a king cake marks? So it's typically during the, uh, the, what we in Louisiana call carnival season, um, which exists between January 6th. So that is the uh, epiphany or the 12th night of Christmas and kind of ramps up all the way through Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. And that changes, um, the, the day that Mardi Gras is changes based on the year and, and where Easter is. But this year it's February 21st. So it's you know, several weeks of, uh, of king cake eating. And if you try to eat king cake outside of season, You'll, you'll get it slapped out of your hand by, by a traditionalist New Orleanian. Uh, we're pretty militant about only eating it during this one season. And king cake is eaten in many places around the world where it takes on several different forms. But why did it find such a welcome home that became an explosion of variety in New Orleans? In many of those other places that it's eaten, oftentimes around Europe, basically anywhere that the, because Rome, they were not eating king cake. This was pre-Christian Rome. They had what was called a Saturnalia cake in honor of their Saturnalia festival. And so as they spread out across Europe and became the Roman Empire, they brought that tradition, um, which is different in some ways than what we do today. But the idea of hiding something inside the cake and whoever finds that hidden something in New Orleans, we have a little plastic baby 
if you find that baby, you're crowned king or queen of the party, and you have to bring the next cake to the next party. That is a tradition that was even in existence uh, to some degree back then in Rome and in all of these different places around Europe where the tradition still exists. Um, the French and the Spanish were some of the earliest European immigrants to come to New Orleans. And so they brought that tradition over here. And it was really, it started off as a very humble affair. It would only be eaten on January 6th and only kind of in the privacy of Creole homes as they had like kind of a bigger than usual dinner on January 6th on the Epiphany. And it wasn't until years later that it started to get connected to the carnival season um, because some of those parade crews would have their opening ball of the carnival season on January 6th. And that introduced a lot of people to king cake season. And then they said, well, this is really fun. You know, whoever gets the the, the baby or, or whatever else is hidden inside the cake has to throw the next party. You know, instead of waiting a whole year, let's just have another party next week. And so when you're eating all of these king cakes for several weeks, what happened over the decades is that instead of just sticking with one kind, it became a lot more fun to try a bunch of different varieties. So if you're a chocolate shop in New Orleans now, you're making a chocolate king cake. If you're a Honduran bakery in New Orleans, you've got a guava cream cheese king cake. Um, if you're the insectarium at the zoo in New Orleans, you've got a uh, cricket king cake. And so there's really endless varieties. We should say that that the big the big book of king cake is also highly photographed. The photographs are just amazing. it's 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 almost like looking at jewelry in some strange way. And despite the fact that there's enormous amount of variety of shape, of size, Three colors stand out as being sort of the the major element of decoration, the colors purple, gold, and green. Where did they come from? Well, there's a lot of debate about, there's a lot of debate about a lot of things related to king cake. Some people say it's in reference to the, because king cake is typically you would eat on the epiphany, the 12th night of Christmas, which is when the three kings are said to have found the baby Jesus and presented their gifts. And so some people believe the three colors are meant to represent those three gifts. The reason that seems most common is that one of the early marching crews and one of the most popular still to this day is called the is called Rex, you know, the crew of Rex. They happen to pick three colors for their emblem, purple, green, and gold. And in one of their parades in 1892, they explained what those three colors mean. And so the gold is meant to be wealth. And the purple is meant to be kind of uh, uh, kingly and ruling as a king. And then the green is meant to be pious and religious. But that's probably, you know, via the crew of Rex and the symbology of those colors, that's probably where that came from. What I find so amazing about New Orleans food culture is that one of the reasons it's so vibrant is because it constantly evolves and um, embraces new people who come, who create their own communities. And and the king cake illustrates this as well. Can you share some stories from more recently arrived communities, um, bakeries, people that you met who have bakeries that serve specific communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I should say that um, uh, when I was setting out to make the big book of King Cake, I thought I was creating a book about cake. And I think it would have been just, a, if that's what it was, it would have been a very beautiful book. But I pretty quickly, when doing interviews, realized that this is going to be so much more interesting if it's a book about the people behind those cakes who are making those cakes and really digging into 
um, to where the inspirations for their different varieties came from. And, and I think looking at the different groups, particularly new arrivals to New Orleans and how that impacts king cake is really interesting. And so a real short one would be um, there's a, a Alan Shia is a James Beard awarding, award-winning chef here in New Orleans. And he moved to New Orleans decades ago. He's from Israel originally. So he grew up eating a whole lot of babka. He said he really loved babka. Um, and he went to, when he moved to New Orleans, he fell in love with the traditions here. And so rather than just coming up with a regular old king cake, he decided to create this beautiful and delicious, rich babka king cake, like a chocolate babka king cake. It's so nice. Another one that I really love is, uh, I had mentioned earlier, a Honduran grocery store. And uh, New Orleans has a very big Honduran population. And the, the owners of the grocery store said that for you know decades, they were just kind of serving other Hondurans. But like as their kids started to go to school, they were being introduced to the king cake tradition all around them. There was kind of no avoiding it. Every Friday at schools in Louisiana, there's going to be a king cake there. And whatever child gets the baby and the king cake has to bring the next one. And so, okay, so, so now there's no avoiding it. King cakes are going to be a part of, of everyone here's life if you've got kids. And so that grocery store said that they wanted to come up with a king cake that their community could feel really proud of. And so they love the taste of, of guava and cream cheese. It's really common in pastries for Hondurans. And so they decided to make the first ever guava cream cheese king cake. And they said for a couple of years, you know, the only people who were eating it were the Hondurans. But, you know, word started to spread. And uh, one day they opened the door and there was a line wrapped around the storefront. And they said that it was the first time they really felt New Orleanian. And they felt really proud because this thing that they had created, New Orleanians that had been here for a long time held it in high enough regard that it was worth standing in line to get. And it felt like they had added something to this tradition that dated back thousands of years earlier. That's so wonderful. And what about the Vietnamese community? There must be several. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's quite a few um, uh, Vietnamese bakeries here. The most famous one and probably the most popular king cake in New Orleans right now is uh, from a place called Dong Phang Bakery. And they're a James Beard Award winner. Um, they ship their king cakes. Basically, their king cakes, they, they ship thousands of them and they sell out within hours of opening up the shipping window. The Tran family owns Dong Phang. They were living in South Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, Miss Tran's husband was a fighter pilot who was captured and imprisoned, and he managed to escape at the end of the war, and the family fled. They were on a ship headed to Myanmar, where pirates took over the ship and stole everything they had, and they were stuck there, but were able to get sponsorship over to New Orleans because there was a growing community of Vietnamese refugees in uh, kind of the outskirts of New Orleans. And so they were able to make them their way over here in the 1970s, but they had nothing left except for each other. And so to make a little bit of money, she learned to be a seamstress and that made a little bit of money, but not much. And so she said she started to bake for this growing Vietnamese community. And that started to make a little bit more money, so much so that she decided to open up a bakery in the 1980s. But again, no, no reason to have king cake that wasn't part of their tradition at all um, but when they had grandkids and they wanted to bring a king cake that wasn't just from a gas station or a grocery store and so miss tran said well maybe dong Fang should make a king cake that kind of suits um, the vietnamese taste and so rather than doing kind of like a sweeter sugar icing that's more common she went for a more savory cream cheese topping and um, Dong Fang King Cake is really well known for its unique shape. It's more of a horseshoe. And there are these interesting kind of like 
ridges along the outside that are kind of slices. And she said that that came about not by accident, but because as a seamstress, she learned that to help bend fabric, you cut little slices into it. And so to make the dough bend, she did the same thing. She cut these slices. And I think that when you look at the 75 different vignettes of the different bakeries in the Big Book of King Cake, what I like about it is it feels like it tells the whole story of what New Orleans is like now, including the people who have been here for centuries, as well as the people who have been here more recently. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, um, I'm really glad that you found the time to be with us today. It is an absolutely fabulous book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. That was Nat Haynes. You'll rarely find a book documenting a joyous tradition so thoroughly and beautifully as the big book of King Cake. If you want to try making your own king cake this weekend, we've got a recipe for you. Check it out at kcrw.com slash goodfood. And for the next generation of king cake lovers, I want to give a shout out to Matt's companion book. It's an illustrated children's book called What Else? The Little Book of King Cake. Coming up, the author of Eating While Black has three words of advice for us when it comes to policing what other people eat. She shares them with us next. Welcome back to Good Food. Imagine that the food which defines you and wraps you in a hug that was created out of struggle and ingenuity was used to shame you. Sustainability is often used to refer to agricultural practices, but culture needs to be sustainable too. And when it comes to food culture in the Black American community, cultural transmission, belonging, homemaking, and survival has historically come up against scarcity, control, and shaming. Psyche A. Williams-Forsen joins us to talk about her book, Eating While Black. Hi, Psyche. Hi, how are you today? Oh, I'm really excited to have you on. Your book is just so interesting, so worthy of conversation. Thank you. Most of us who grow up, let's say, in cities, experience a multiplicity of food cultures that may sit beside one another or may entwine. Can you talk about the diversity of food culture that you grew up with and sort of play it against the often predominant food story of the Black community as a monolith. Right. Yeah, you know, because the majority of Black people in America came through the mouth of enslavement, you know, it's assumed that we all eat the same foods, right? That we all somehow eat fried chicken, watermelon, mac and cheese, collard every day. When the reality is, Black people come from a lot of different regional variations. We come from a lot of different family differences and so forth. For example, I'm from rural Virginia. My parents were born in in rural Virginia. Uh, One parent was born in Harlem. And so I grew up primarily, though, in, in upstate New York. So we were familiar with the fried chicken, collard green, foods because we ate those often, uh, especially on Sundays. That was Sunday dinner because these are labor-intensive meals. Um, We also ate them on holidays. However, during the week, we ate a variety of different foods. Fish, we ate um, some of the things I remember, pearl peas. 
when my dad um, was diagnosed with diabetes, we went to Meatless Mondays and we went to Tuna Fish Tuesdays. And, and so our diets change. So this perception that all Black people eat the same foods is really coming from popular culture and misinformation we have been fed over decades, right? Because what folks are eating in New England are not necessarily what Black folks are eating um, in New Orleans or in Oakland or in Seattle or in Indiana or what have you. In some cases, yes. But in many other cases, you're adapting to your current environment to sustain you in your, in your new locale. How did the phrase worry about yourself sort of inform, inform this book? I talk about it in the first chapter and I actually end the book with this, with that phrase as well, because I thought it was so very well stated. You know, the Eating While Black begins with the story of a DC metro worker who was um, perhaps between shifts or what have you, but she was on the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area transit uh, system, and she was photographed while in uniform eating while riding on the metro train. And those of us in the DMV who have frequented the train, we know that there's all these rules and regulations, like any other transit system, about what you can and cannot do. And so on this particular day, um, this metro worker was minding her business, and a rider on the train, Natasha Times, uh, took a photo of her and tweeted it with a comment about, you know, you're not supposed to be eating on the train. This is unacceptable because we can't do it. Workers shouldn't be able to do it. And when she asked the employee about it, the employee replied, worry about yourself, right? And so for me, that became a very poignant, pertinent statement for eating while Black because it seems to me that African-American people or Black people throughout the diaspora and especially in the United States undergo quite a bit of surveillance. Someone is always watching us, whether our actions are good, whether they're deemed bad, whether they're deemed appropriate, inappropriate, we're always being watched. This has always been the plight of Black America since we've arrived in this country. And so when she makes that very, very critical comment She's absolutely right. As it turns out, as a metro worker, she had been made aware that actually police were not allowed anymore to give out tickets for eating. And so she was very much informed about her own business. It was Miss Tynes who was very clearly unaware of these new uh, mandates that had been passed down or missives that had been shared. And so she was very much out of line to try and correct a metro worker who, in fact, knew what she was doing and was appropriate in doing so. You you also talk about kind of an, an internalization of of shaming, a kind of self-shaming um, that, that might play into respectability politics. Sure. Within Black communities, and again, this has always been the case, in, and certainly since Reconstruction, um, but I would say argue even long before, dur- while during enslavement, you have some Black folks who undeniably feel if I act a certain way, if I dress a certain way, if I behave and comport myself in a particular way, I will be considered the good Black and I will be accepted 
into larger communities, whether white, Latina, whatever the case may be. One of the cases that I use this conversation in the book is is having attended an, a program where a woman essentially just casts off her mother-in-law's way of cooking in favor of a new way that we were presented with during a particular presentation. She's just really is like, oh my God, I'm so tired of the pork. I'm tired of this, that, and the other. Well, when the chef explains to us how he cooked this particular meal, it is clear that she would not be able to duplicate it or replicate it because part of his ingredients were not obtainable to the average person. And so that's a perfect example of trying to align yourself with everyone else who's in the room, only a few of whom look like her, in a way to try to say, I'm a good person. I eat this way or I eat that way. So you should like me because I'm one of the good Blacks. And that's part of what I talk about, or that's part of what I mean when I talk about the crooked room concept, trying to fit and write your chair in a room that really was not designed to accommodate you. No matter how much you contort yourself, you still may or may not be accepted by larger societies. So why throw off a a whole history of cultural transmission and cultural practice for something that you cannot obtain? And what about power dynamics? How do we who are not part of the community recognize when they're in the mix so we can react and adjust? Power dynamics are really difficult sometimes to to eke out and to tease out. Um, All objects that we engage in our material worlds, from food to um, our clothes, our you know, televisions or lack thereof, our telephone, all objects imbue us or empower us with a form of social, cultural, political, economic currency. So objects themselves may or may not have power, but it's the the weight that we give these objects that allow them to have the power that they have over our lives, in our lives, and over other people. We know, for example, that many people, uh, physicians and nutritionists and so forth, have a great deal of power over people's lives when they say, you need to eat X or you need to do Y. But what I was finding, the reason, one of the reasons I wrote Eating While Black, is that everyday people were deciding that they had the power to make decisions and tell other people how to live their culinary lives. Random people, people you would meet at farmer's markets or in the grocery store. I've actually heard people say to others, you know, that's not good for you. According to whom? It's good for me in this moment because it's what I want. It's going to bring me comfort. It's going to bring me joy. It's going to bring me, I'm hungry, right? And so what I was finding was a great deal of the moral certitude and and so forth, that people were pushing on others to say, I'm a better person than you because I eat clean, or I made this, or I'm a that, I'm pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan. Very few people were saying I'm a carnivore. So this is some of the way in which power 
becomes embedded in food cultures and embedded in food ways and becomes embedded in food negotiations. And I think there's a value in telling my stories and the stories of other people because for some of us, our stories is what we have. And so, especially people who are disenfranchised, often women, people of color, children, I think it's important to give voice to stories because our experiences are valuable and it's how we learn, it's how we commune as humans. And it's the one thing that food certainly brings out when we're together. It's lots and lots of stories from which we can all revel in, enjoy, and sometimes be challenged by. A perfect way to end our conversation. Thank you so much. That scholar and author, Dr. Psyche A. Williams-Forson, her latest book is Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America. In a minute, we pull back the curtain on the lucrative, perilous, and highly specialized world of bee pollination. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. When people talk about the birds and the bees to refer to reproduction, it's not just metaphorical, it's literal, especially around this time of year. That's right. It's bee pollination season. Every year at around this time, bee truckers haul millions of hives across the U.S. from states such as Montana, Idaho, Texas, and Florida to places like California. So bees can pollinate the state's 1.3 million acres of almond trees. Adam Novicki, who runs Therese and Adam Farms with his partner Therese McLaughlin, turned a beekeeping hobby into a business back in 2010. He joins us with the nitty-gritty on bees, almonds, and why this is a weird year for almond pollination. Well, uh, water is one issue. So uh, growers on the west side are have, have had their water allocation slashed or cut off. So there's they're pulling out um, their acres. So we're losing, like last year, they pulled out 60,000 acres of, of almonds. And um, then the COVID completely screwed up the, uh, you know, most of the 70% of the crop is exported. And uh, they were uh, not able to um, get cargo containers to export even though economies were coming back. Now, the good news is almonds are shelf-stable, so no big deal there. But that really messed up the cash flow. So um, when beekeepers place their bees in almonds, you get 50% up front and 50% on removal. But it's that removal part where people may not pay you, <laughs> you know, if they don't have the money. So uh, a lot of beekeepers were you know, didn't get their payments from last year. Uh, I can't, I don't know the numbers, but it was, it was sizable. And uh, that can then screw up the economy of, you know, renewing contracts. Do you want to do business with somebody who didn't pay their bills? You know, things like that. So, and there's a lot of brokers involved. So uh, the beekeepers are really, really on the, lo- on the losing end of that situation. And, and traditionally, or for a while, um, beekeepers have made money, yes, by making honey, but also renting their bees out for pollination. Yes. Uh, in, in a nutshell, it used to be two-thirds of your income was honey and one-third pollination. That's re- that's reversed itself. So now most beekeepers 
uh, need to pollinate, whether it's almonds, blueberries, you know, apples, but almonds are the big, the big ticket. It's the Super Bowl of, I mean, it's a $200 per hive rental fee. So, you know, if you have a thousand hives to at 200,000, you know, that's, that's good money. A thousand hives, that, that is a lot of hives. Oh yeah. Most of the, there's been a lot of consolidation. I mean, if you don't have a truckload of bees and a, a semi can hold 408 hives. So that, and that's just the way they're palletized and stacked. And if you, if you don't really have that number, like they, they, we're talking thousands of truckloads. They need two hives per acre. So if you have 1.3 million acres, theoretically you need, you know, 2.3 to 2.6 million acres. I mean, uh, hives. And there's only like 500,000 in California. You know what I mean? So they, they need tons and tons of bees. And we should say that despite the fact that um, a lot of farmers started pulling out almond acreage um, because of the drought, there are still around 1.3 million acres. Yes, that is true. 1.3 bearing acres. And then there's 300,000 non-bearing. So really it's 1.6 million acres. But keep in mind, maybe 20% now are what they call self-fertile. And that doesn't mean they don't need bees, but you could maybe get by with one hive per acre instead of two. So how does almond tree pollination with bees actually work? Paint us a picture. When you see an almond orchard, uh, and, and they kind of all look the same, right, to the untrained eye, but sometimes you'll notice paint on the trunks. And that what that is is indicating that Half of the trees in an orchard are a variety called nonpareil. It's a very popular, when you get raw almonds at Whole Foods or whatever, chances are it's nonpareil. You know, I mean, it's just a, a beautiful nut, great taste and, you know, good, good weight. That is half. But nonpareil cannot be pollinized by itself. So it needs at least one other pollinizer. But oftentimes you'll put two. So you have 50% nonpareil. 25% something else and 25% something else. And then it just alternates throughout the orchard because the bees go from bee, tree to tree, row to row, and they uh, then pollinate the trees. So that's how you set a crop. And how long, when does the season start and how long is it? In terms of the actual bloom, it, it's starting this week and it'll start to pick up. And by the third week of February, it'll be 70% bloom. Then towards the end, it'll be 80 then in May, uh, March, it'll it'll start to peter out. But there are late blooming varieties like uh, Butte and Padre are di- two different varieties that are late bloomers. So those uh, you know would extend in the, towards the end of March. The other thing I, I wanted to mention is nonpareil. They're always going to pick one or two pollinizers that are a little earlier and a little later than nonpareil. So you have this overlap, and that's really really important because the the flower only stays uh, viable for two or three days. So the beehives that are brought to California for this purpose, where where do they come from and why those states in particular? Literally, they come from everywhere. But most of them, I would say, come from Florida and Texas. All of us that are involved with migratory beekeeping, which I am not now, I'm back in California, but when I managed uh, a 4,000 hive operation, we were migratory. And what that means is we were here for almonds. When that was over, we went to Mississippi to make queens, and then we would go right up to North Dakota for honey in the summer. Other people, uh, Florida beekeepers, will come out for almonds 
go right back to Florida, and they'll either stay there or, believe it or not, they'll send the bees all the way up to Maine for uh, blueberries. Then there's a lot of beekeepers in in Montana that come down and uh, Washington and Oregon, and they all they all come down. But then they'll leave. Why don't beekeepers just keep the hives here the rest of the year? Oh, there's not enough forage. Uh, bees fly up to two miles. So when we would bring bees to North Dakota, there's it's kind of the Wild West there. They didn't they didn't monitor where the bees go. So as long as you had permission, you could set down bees. Now, if now the idea is to set down maybe sixty hives, and then they fly, and you know there's not much competition. But if you have everybody setting bees down, you won't make very much honey, and you might even have bees begin to die. It's a feast or famine. You know, it's an insect population dynamic. So. The beehives that most of us are used to seeing in cute cartoons and pictures are not much at all like commercial beehives. Could you describe what they look like? Well, when you see pictures of a beehive, you know, you, you'll see two white boxes, sometimes one box, but usually you'll see two and they're sitting out in a field. That's a typical Langstroth hive, uh, which is was invented like 150 years ago, and it has removable frames. So this guy discovered, oh my gosh, the bees will only fill in a certain amount of space. And if we maintain that space, we can remove things without destroying the hive. So that said, for commercial beekeepers, we have the same setup, but we have to put them on pallets so we put four hives on a pallet about 33 by 48 inches, and those are moved by forklifts. So like I was telling you about the semi-truck, we can stack three pallets and then put them on a truck. And then we can do that again, and you'll get 34 stacks of bees. So when you add, do the math, it comes out to about 408 hives. And that's what we do to move them around. So moving bees is a tricky operation, I I would imagine. And I understand that the drivers can only drive them during the day. And once they start driving, they can barely stop. Why is that? That is correct. Because once we've loaded that truck, we put giant nets across the top. Okay. And we've loaded at night. So the driver will leave and he or she might go and park somewhere and sleep till dawn. And then they go. And the thing is, they have to keep going because if they're in a cold environment, that's okay. The bees will stay inside because they don't like to come out if it's uh, less than 55 degrees. But if they do come out, let's say they're going through the south, you know, through Arizona, even in the winter, it can get warm. They The bees will come out of the hive and try to get out. And then they'll end up suffocating because they can't they can't get out through the net. And we are trained when your delivery comes, <laughs> you know, if someone shipped bees from Florida and I was, I've done this, I've been a broker, you, you receive them, you're always going to lose some. But if I look in the back of the net and it's nothing but death, you know, which is very sad, we then have an issue with the trucker because then we know they stopped. Wow. And, and because of this kind of super pressurized Hauling schedule, do bee haulers make more money than regular truckers? Oh, yes. Yes, big time. This year, because of the inflation with the diesel, it's out of control. I mean, I'm sure the rate is very high. But in the past, um, a trucker might only make, let's be generous, 75 cents a mile for regular cargo. Bee haulers will make $350, $450, even $5 a mile 
What happens once the almond pollination season is done? What do you what do you do with the bees? Almond pollination is very almond pollen is very nutritious. So uh, the bees often grow very quickly. In fact, it's not unheard of to have people adding boxes, you know, to give them more room to grow. After they're done, oranges start to bloom in the Central Valley. If you have good connections there, you'll go to oranges. Now, oranges don't need pollination. Their polyploidy is their, is how they recreate, so they don't need bees. But they're a great source of nectar and, you know, orange blossom honey. So a lot of guys will go, they'll either make orange blossom honey and they'll do splits. And that's when people will take, if they've got a thousand hives going into almonds, they'll split to 2,000 or 3,000 coming out. And uh, sometimes that's back in Texas. Sometimes it's here in California. Sometimes it's back in Oregon or they're going up for cherries or apples. You know, But everyone's got their strategy. It, it breaks off into a million different directions. So I imagine, given that we're talking about a highly lucrative business, that there must be beehive thefts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my friend Brian Hyatt, the H-I-A-T-T. Those guys are wonderful beekeepers. They run like 20,000 hives in Washington and in North Dakota. They had 100 hives stolen from Madeira just a couple of days ago. And uh, we all look out for each other, um, but it, it happens. Um, uh, and what's really disheartening is that it's not your common criminal. Uh, it's a beekeeper who stole them. Because anybody who doesn't know bees is not about to let go and grab a pallet of poisonous insects, you know. Uh, uh, So it's shady, you know, beekeepers that maybe they're short on their own contract. uh, So they steal. Remember I told you about how you get paid up front and then you get paid on the back end? Well, if somebody steals 100 hives, you know, and it's $200 a hive, that's $20,000. Well, they could get a contract, bring them there to grower X who does not know they're stolen, get a $10,000 check, cash it, and then they won't even come back and pick up the bees. Has anybody ever been caught and... and oh, yeah, um... yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, there was a guy up in Fresno who uh, uh, was stealing a lot of hives, and uh, he had the audacity to try to sell the boxes. Like, I don't know if you sold the insides. Beehives, you can sell the insides like an engine. You know what I mean? It's the box that has the identification. But this guy was greedy and tried to sell the boxes. But somebody who came to look at him was friends with the beekeeper who had them stolen. <laughs> so then the sheriffs come in plain clothes and they they pretend to make a deal and then they arrest they arrested the guy. And then they found his hives and they were branded with the Montana beekeepers brand on the frames so they knew that he had stolen them. It's grand theft. But people steal forklifts. I mean, it's it's the Wild West. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. This was so much fun. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure and I love your program and it's really humbling and honoring, uh, honorable to uh, be able to do it. That was beekeeper Adam Novicki of TNA Farms, which produces raw California honey and beeswax candles. He was discussing the challenges of hauling beehives across the country to pollinate California's millions of almond trees, a process that we're in the middle of right now. We've got a link to where you can buy Adam's honey at kcrw.com goodfood. Senate Bill 1383, 
the California composting law is now mandatory in Los Angeles. As of January 16th, Angelinos are required to empty food waste into those big green bins. Here at Good Food, we had a lot of questions about the rollout and the rules, so we asked Michael Martinez, Executive Director of LA Compost, to join us for an update. Hi, Michael. Hello. This has been a very long time coming. (laughs) I've had a few conversations leading up to this, but it's exciting nonetheless. It's true. I feel like this has been going on for years. Um, So as a refresher, explain Senate Bill 1383 and how it works. Yeah, so SB 1383 is pretty much the most significant waste reduction mandate to be adopted in our state in the last 30 years. It essentially requires the state to reduce our organic waste disposal by 75% by the year 2025 meaning we need to um, reduce our organic material by roughly 20 million tons annually um, over the next few years. This has been a bill that was introduced several years ago, has been uh, going back and forth, but we are here. We are in 2023, and it is fully implemented in the city of Los Angeles for single-family homes by LA Sanitation. I have had friends who um, who live in apartment buildings, and so they're serviced by private trash pickup companies. Are they affected by this as well? They will be affected, absolutely. Their offerings are a little bit different from a scheduling standpoint. So a few weeks ago, the city of Los Angeles, specifically LA Sanitation, rolled out curbside organic collection for all 750,000 single-family homes. That does not include apartment dwellings beyond five units or small commercial buildings. Those units are serviced by recycler providers, those private haulers that you mentioned, and they will also be rolling out their own curbside collection this year. The, the timeline really is now. So um, although they were not included in that announcement rollout from LA Sanitation, they will absolutely be provided options. And why exactly do we want to do this? Is this a situation of trying to just keep landfills from filling up? Yeah, that's a great question. I think at the moment, organic waste is the largest waste stream in California. When we think about just food in general, the highest value and highest use of food is ensuring that if food is still edible, it can support the one in five Californians who are food insecure. There's definitely a hierarchy in regards to seeing the value of this, but composting as a whole just is an incredible act of resistance to this climate emergency that we are in. It supports with water retention and stormwater filtration. It supports air quality. It supports erosion and runoff. And in addition to just not filling up landfills and assuming that things that go away disappear, it's really just an environmental justice issue when we think about access to healthy food and healthy soil, how far this material travels in the communities it impacts along the way. By seeing this material as a resource and actively responding to to this and ensuring that this material is not just wasted and thrown away, but very much viewed as a resource that can be transformed into compost that can return to farmlands, that can return to green spaces all across the city of Los Angeles. It's very much a long time coming and very much long overdue. This transcends all of us and very much is a collective act of contributing to this planet that we all inhabit every single day. So um, the very fact that this is statewide and composting is going to be pushed pretty hard is is really exciting. And we want to make sure that people understand the why and it's important and not just 
do this or else kind of situation. So let's start to get down to the nitty-gritty, so to speak. How much of a typical Angelino's trash is compostable? What are we putting in the green bin? In this Organics LA, which is what the program is called, pretty much everything that was once alive can go in your green bin. So when we think about what's coming out of the kitchen, uh, you think of your fruits and vegetables, your eggshells, your bread, cereals, grains, pastas, beans. This program will actually accept meat, bones, fish and shells, coffee grounds. It'll even accept food soil paper. And then, of course, similar to what you were already putting in your green bin, your yard waste, your flowers, your woods, your chopsticks. The things that can't are, of course, glass and produce stickers, rubber bands. The biodegradable and compostable bags are another hot topic that unfortunately can't go in the bin at the moment. There's free pails that are going out that you can keep in your kitchen countertop or under the sink. A lot of the things we recommend to folks that drop off at our hubs is freezing your scraps if you have the capacity. But there's pretty much majority of what's coming out of your kitchen can go in that green bin. Okay, so you said a sentence that was just one quick sentence. And I've been doing this um, since it was mandated. And I am always an early adopter of these things. And I'm very happy to do something where I can walk the talk since Mm -hmm. I do so much talking. But I already foresee pushback by neighbors. And I've already heard from people like I taught a cooking class last week, and they were all a flutter. And the main issue was the these bags that purport to be compostable, including bags that you can buy for those bins that sit on your counter to collect the materials, the fact that they're not compostable. And I understand that because, you know, I took my stuff out to my curb And threw it in the green bin, which is huge, that green bin. And I watched as all my little, you know, rinds and seeds and leftovers fell into the very bottom of that giant bin. And I was like, okay, I'm going to close this up and tomorrow it's going to be disgusting. (laughs) So part of me was like, should I buy some sawdust to layer in? Should What do I do to like keep the flies down to make sure maggots don't come before it's picked up? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and a great comment in regards to what people are going to deal with when if a trash day is on Tuesday and you're cooking the, the Tuesday evening after it's been picked up, that's seven days of material having to be held somewhere. Obviously, having freezer space is a luxury, especially for someone who is an avid cook or chef that is constantly using those materials. But the freezer is an incredible option to put everything on pause. If that's not available, lining the material with newspaper or some of the ads that are kind of soy-based ink is an option. Using a paper bag kind of as a liner. And then, of course, some of the things you mentioned, like, can I put sawdust at the bottom of my green bin? Can I cover it with with that? Absolutely. You can absolutely do that. If waiting a whole week is is a burden, there's also drop-off locations that LA Compost is offering at different farmers markets and hubs. Again, another opportunity for you to keep things local, another opportunity for you to compost local. I think the biggest thing that we are trying to do both with LA Compost and what the city is trying to do is to provide choice to do it in your backyard, to do it in your community, to do it at your curbside, to do it as many locations as possible so it's not just kind of a one-size-fits-all. 
Well, this is really great news. And, you know, we're people, so we're going to be, you know, resistant and have issues. But I think overall, it's just such a relief that this issue that I know you have been working on so hard for so many years finally seems to have a, a massive resolution point in sight. Thank you so much, Michael. Of course. Thank you for your time and and interest in this over the years and kind of getting close to this finish line. Really excited to just see it finally happen. Michael Martinez is the executive director of LA Compost. Last year, LA Compost diverted more than 4 million pounds of organic waste from landfills. Imagine what we could accomplish if all Angelinos take part. For more information on how to compost, including how to pick up a free compost pail from the city, visit our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. The Market Report is on deck. Stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. It's off to the market we go. Jillian Ferguson is in Santa Monica now with an update on what's in season this week in Southern California. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. It is a blustery morning at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. I'm here with chefs Elizabeth Heitner and Nestor Silva, the duo behind Mali, a pop-up that blends their Jewish and Mexican upbringings. They're here shopping for their first ever brunch service, which is happening this Monday, President's Day at Jewel on Hoover Street. Hello to you both. Hi, Jillian. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So, You guys are always here shopping the market. I know your menu's changing all the time. What's a dish that's on the brunch menu that just feels like it could only happen right now, this week in February in Southern California? For brunch, uh, we'll be featuring our chicory salad. I know chicories have been around for uh, a couple weeks, but this one feels very spring to us. It'll feature tamayas beets and garden of chicories. This dish was actually inspired by my dad, because when I was young, he always used to eat borscht um, on Friday nights, and I would see this bowl of pink gloop and just be totally disgusted, thinking he was eating Pepto-Bismol, and I'm like, Dad, what are you eating? And as I've matured and become, you know, more appreciative of food, I've really come to love the soup, so I knew I had wanted to make a salad that was inspired by borscht and kind of like an ode to my father. So the salad, we're serving it with a pink mole. We're calling it a borscht mole. It's made with red sauerkraut, caraway seeds, potatoes, dried Mexican chilies, beets, and hibiscus. Talk us through the whole dish. How do you prepare the chicories? Are they cooked or are they raw? The chicories are raw and we slice them pretty thin, like a chopped salad. I love the pink chicories because they're a little bit more tender than a treviso or a radicchio. So um, you still get that bitter punch, but it's a little bit less intense, which we love, especially sliced thin. It's just really nice texture. And then where do the beets factor in? The beets are actually quite a lengthy process. Uh, It takes us about two days to prepare. We first steam them and then we smoke them. After they're smoked, they get dehydrated for a day, and then they get pickled. So we end up with a a beet that is sweet and acidic and meaty. And also this salad is vegan, so it it really just, like, satiates that, like, meaty textures for anyone who's looking for, like, a hearty salad. Okay, so describe visually the final composition and what the dish looks like. So we spread the pink mole out on the bottom— and then we plate our, our beets. 
And right now we're using berries in the salad as well, kind of like an homage to uh, Nestor's previous job at Rustic Canyon, their famous salad of beets and berries. But previously, when persimmons were in season, we were using persimmons. So we like that the salad keeps evolving kind of with the seasons. Um, and then we also are serving it with puffed wild rice for crunch. And then the beet pickling liquid we use as a vinaigrette for the chicory. So we toss those in the vinaigrette and kind of cover the entire thing so it just looks like a beautiful pink plate of lettuces. Oh, God, it sounds beautiful. And also like the perfect blend of winter, which we're coming out of, and spring, which we're going towards. Um, What else is going to be on the menu for brunch? I'm really excited for our babka French toast. It's a Mexican chocolate spiced babka. Also, we're doing this super exciting burrito with black beans and ladkas, which we're really excited about with guacamole and chile de arbol salsa. Wow. Well, this sounds like quite the brunch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Elizabeth Heitner and Nestor Silva. They are the duo behind Mali. This Monday, they're going to be popping up with brunch at Jewel on Hoover Street. You can make reservations on Resi. Or check it out on their Instagram, Mally, M-A-L-L-I underscore L-A. This is a public service announcement to all Angelinos. Harry's Berries are back at Southern California Farmers Markets. The season is in full swing. And Cole Jean, who has been part of the family for over a decade, is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Cole. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. It's good to see you. You've just sold out. It's about 10 o'clock on Wednesday morning here as we're recording. But that's pretty good for you guys these days. That means you brought how many berries this week? We brought 160 flats, which is, I think, 70 more than last week. (laughs) There you go. So we are ramping up. Tell us what we can expect as the season progresses. So we'll have the gaviotas for the next two to three months, and then we'll start getting the Mar de Bois French wild variety in. They're a very good variety as well, softer, a bit more of a Concord grape flavor to them. And then once we actually get into the summertime, that's when we'll start getting our vegetables like our beans and other fruits like the tomatoes. And hopefully during the wintertime, we'll start getting our seascapes in. They're our winter crop. Okay, so everybody knows, I don't have to tell anybody listening how delicious Harry's berries are, but I don't think everybody knows why they are so delicious. So I'd love to hear about how you guys take care of the soil and how you achieve these gorgeous berries every week. Well, it's a number of factors. One, just the fact that we do everything organically really helps out. We're not doing any of those harsh harsh sprays or chemicals. Those always affect uh, the flavor of the fruit, especially strawberries. Think of them very much like a sponge almost. They soak up whatever you put on them. So you put a spray on them, they'll soak up all that bad flavor. If you don't do anything like that, then they just have that nice natural sweetness develop as well. And something that's really noticeable about a Harry's Berry strawberry is the color. You would never see what's called a white shoulder on a Harry's Berry strawberry. So is that a testament to who is harvesting the strawberries? It's mainly just due to the fact that we give the berries a few extra days on the plant. So that way they actually get all the way ripe. And most other people, they pick their berries earlier. So that way they last longer. They have a longer shelf life somewhere between anywhere between seven to two weeks or seven days to two weeks. Uh, We pick ours about three to four days later on. So you get a fuller flavor, a deeper red. The flesh is red all the way through. The downside is they don't have as long of a shelf life, but most of the time it doesn't matter that much. No one's going to keep these around. Very rarely, very rarely. (laughs) So are the berries that you bring to a Wednesday market, are they harvested on Tuesday? Yes, we harvest them during uh, the day before. We do that with most of our markets. We try to harvest, uh, especially like our big ones, our uh, Wednesday Santa Monica and our weekend markets. We try to harvest the day before. So that way we have the freshest uh, berries possible. So that way they'll last as long as possible when uh, our customers buy them. 
Well, it really shows um, in your berries. They are incredible, and I can't wait to enjoy them all season long. Thank you, Cole. Thank you very much. That was Cole Jean. He is part of the Jean family behind Harry's Berries. You can find them at a number of farmer's markets. Just follow them on Instagram at Harry's Berries to figure out which farmer's market they'll be at closest to you. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laurel Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleinman. I'm taking the week to reacquaint myself with all the honeys in my pantry. It's a drizzle palooza. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.